0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey there, interwebs. Um, hope everyone's having a
1: good night, right? Oh, my eyes look real dark in this lighting. That's rad. Anyway. this is a
2: TikTok from a man named Chuck Jackson. His handle is Chuck fights cancer, where he chronicles his treatment for squamous cell carcinoma
1: thing I want to talk about a little bit is this, uh, this carboplatin and other chemo drug uh, shortage that's out there. tried to do a little research on this, and, and I can't really find much on there other than there's been more than 40 states in the U.S. so far that have uh, run into this shortage. So, Jackson's TikTok some, uh, is from
2: the end of May. And since then, the shortages of cancer drugs, basic chemotherapy drugs have gotten so bad that they're threatening the care of hundreds of thousands of patients across the country.
1: So currently around 14 different chemotherapy drugs are in shortage.
2: That's Ed Young, a science writer for The Atlantic.
1: And some of those include things like cisplatin, carboplatin, and methotrexate, which are really frontline drugs.
2: These are generic drugs, pretty basic ones. And they are the foundations of chemotherapy for more than a dozen kinds of cancer. How widespread are these shortages?
1: As I understand it, they're pretty nationwide, but like many things about our healthcare system, um, the, the problem is a patchy one. So some centers are probably fine, others are in really dire straits in terms of their supplies. Um, but a recent survey um, showed that 93% of US cancer centers were experiencing a shortage of carboplatin and 70% were low on cisplatin.
2: So, today on the show, how it all got so bad and why these kinds of shortages, ones that jeopardize the health of patients, are a feature of the cancer drug market, not a bug. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day
1: ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
2: The cancer drug shortage has been going on for months now, but lately, it's reached a fever pitch.
1: The FDA says more than a dozen cancer drugs are in short supply and it's forcing patients to change their treatment plans It can sometimes mean the difference between life Mm -hmm. and death.
2: The problem comes down to a weakened supply chain and the bottom line.
0: This month, the American Cancer Society issuing a warning call. The shortage of certain cancer drugs has become a serious and life-threatening issue. One reason
2: is the shutdown of an Indian manufacturing facility, which provided a staggering percentage of the cancer drugs used in the U.S. But Ed says the roots of the problem go back far before that.
1: So this particular wave of shortages, which is unprecedented in its scope and the number of patients that have been affected, have been going on since, I would say, um, the middle of spring but these kinds of shortages have been going on for a very long time. Um, there was a big wave of shortages in, in the sort of 20, 2010, 2011. And since then, some people I've talked to have said that, you know, there's never really been a year uh, where one or more important chemotherapy drugs have not been in shortage.
2: In the story that you wrote about this most recently. You you traced some of this to an Indian drug manufacturing business called Intas Pharmaceuticals. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about it and what happened.
1: Yeah, so Intas Pharmaceuticals manufactures um, many kinds of generic drugs, including cancer drugs, that are then supplied to the U.S. Last November, the FDA conducted an inspection of Intas's plant in India, and it found just farcical conditions, basic steps that are necessary to ensure that the drugs are of high quality, that they're pure, that they're at the right dose, that they are free of bacteria and other contaminants, they just weren't being taken. Sometimes they didn't exist. And worse still, the plant seemed to be engaged in a kind of cover-up. Um, they had shredded documents. They had hidden documents. One quality control officer admitted to dousing some documents in acid. Whoa. Um Yes, yeah, so it's... It, It's ludicrous what the conditions that the FDA found there. And as a result, Intest was forced to shut down production. Now, it so happened that this plant, this company, was supplying the US with half of its cisplatin, half of its methotrexate, 20% of its carboplatin. Like it had a huge market share in a lot of these incredibly important drugs. And that was one of the things that precipitated this wave of shortages. Other companies couldn't compensate. But I think that... That explanation raises a couple of really important questions, such as, how is it possible that the loss of one manufacturing plant could have completely hobbled uh, the production of these drugs that are so important to so many patients? And how could a company with such sloppy, farcical manufacturing practices have possibly captured 50% of the market in these crucial drugs?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I am not someone who regularly reads FDA inspection reports, but even I could look at that thing and see, like, wait a minute, there were, like, bags full of shredded data, like, it, farcical, the word you use, seems appropriate. How did a company with those practices capture so much market share?
1: As we've said, these kinds of drugs are generics, so they are not patented and they are sold at extremely low prices. And that means that they are very, very unprofitable. Those low profits mean that a lot of manufacturers have just left the market entirely, leaving it weak. The other problem is that these drugs are very hard to make. So unlike um, the kinds of medicines that we can take in uh, oral capsules, cancer chemotherapies are injected into the bloodstream and usually into the bloodstream of people who are extremely sick. So the quality control has to be really exacting. Like You do not want a single bacterium inside this stuff. But the kinds of upgrade or training that you need to have really good quality control, there's no incentives for companies to actually invest in any of that because the margins are so low. And that creates weaknesses, right? It means that the manufacturers are vulnerable to either spontaneous manufacturing problems or the kind of disastrous inspections that we've talked about. And then if those happen, other manufacturers, of which there are probably aren't very many, Can't compensate, and then you have a shortage. Now, that's sort of part of the answer. The other part is that the market is completely opaque. So it's not just that it is small and frail, but that you cannot see either the weaknesses or the strengths of it. That is why a company with such farcical practices. Managed to get fifty percent. A lot of the you know people who work in the space didn't know that Intas had fifty percent of the market in cisplatin until the plant went into shutdown. And I think that degree of opacity is that you know the, the sheer um, the the black box nature of the market was a complete shock to me um, when I started reporting this piece.
2: I think that was what was so confounding to me. After all. Cancer is not a surprise. Certainly an individual diagnosis is, but people get breast cancer, people get colon cancer, people get prostate cancer. There are all kinds of cancers. And so it seems almost unfathomable that major hospital systems and and purchasers wouldn't have a sense of the, the durability of the market.
1: I think it is completely unfathomable and and you're right you know we the thing is we're not even talking about like the high end state of the art super expensive like new drugs that that um that patients might struggle to access right Le- these are the basic vanilla frontline drugs that have been around for decades and should be the most accessible and l- let me give you an example of yeah. of how little we know about these markets, because I I think it, it, it clarifies how ludicrous the situation is. So there's a drug called fludarabine, which is a cancer drug that is one of the ones currently in shortage. If you look at FDA approvals, there are 12 companies that are licensed to make it, which seems like a strong market. But actually, only five of those companies market the drug. And based on publicly available information, we do not know which of those companies makes how much of that drug. We know a bit more because of a Senate committee inquiry, which showed that of those five, one makes the drug itself, two others actually get their drug from Europe, and then one of those two supplies the final two of the five. So what looked like this you know, resilient market with 12 different manufacturers turns out really to be three, kind of. And then if you look at where the drug's um, uh, active pharmaceutical ingredient, that's like the chemical at the heart of the drug, the thing that mm-hmm. makes it work, that comes from six other facilities that supply these, so like so quote-unquote, manufacturers. It's really unclear which of those facilities produce how much of the API, which manufacturers they supply, or even for one of those facilities which country it is in come on i i mean right like so clearly the market for fludarabine is much weaker than it looks like at first glance but how weak it is is basically impossible to determine. And the, the flip is is true as well. The, the strength of the market is impossible to determine. And by that, I mean, let's say one of those manufacturers decides to pour in a ton of money to upgrade its equipment, to uh, train its staff so that it knows it is not going to get a bad inspection. It is not going to trigger a shortage. It is going to give you the best fludarabine in the world there is currently no way for any hospital or any purchaser to actually see any of that or to make decisions based on that. And because there's no way of doing that, because there's no like quality rating system, because there's no transparency of the data, what happens is that people make decisions based only on price. So then the manufacturers have this massive race to the bottom where they're competing solely to lower prices, and that pushes them to cut corners, and so either they just leave the market because they can't afford to keep on making medicines, or they get sloppier and sloppier until something breaks and then there's a shortage. This is why some cancer patients today are struggling to get the care that they need, and Doesn't that sound completely unacceptable to you?
2: When we come back, who is supposed to make sure that this
0: doesn't happen? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: Listening to Ed, it feels obvious that someone, some government agency, maybe the FDA, should be keeping track of this market, but it isn't clear exactly who should be in charge.
1: So often people point the finger at the FDA because they, um, you know, a regulatory body, they approve uh, medicines and so on, right? But the FDA isn't really an economics agency. And this is fundamentally an economics problem. Like one simple way of summarizing everything I just told you is that the, the problem is the inability of the market to observe or reward quality. That is an economics problem that is beyond the scope of the FDA. Mm. So part of the solution to this problem, I think, is identifying some kind of agency that can actually take ownership so that it doesn't slip between the cracks of different Parts of government, and one good candidate for that is a is a um, agency called ASPA, which currently handles preparedness for um, emergencies, so natural disasters or you know, hey, a pandemic. A pandemic, yeah. Um, you know, one of those might happen, um, and. Aspa works to do a lot of things but including shoring up medical supplies right to make sure that the the drugs we need countermeasures for things like pandemics are available when we need them now you could very easily argue that this shortage of cancer drugs is just an ongoing emergency created by this dysfunctional market that we've ended up with and falls within the purview of an agency that's designed to stop these kinds of emergencies from happening.
2: Uh, and, and what would the agency say?
1: Uh, I have not actually asked Asper what they say about that. Uh, but it's, you know, several of the people I've talked to have said that they're, they're, if it's not them, it needs to be someone, right? Uh, the FDA maybe, but it, as as I've said, it's not quite part of their remit. But there needs to be a coordinating force in part because the solutions need to be comprehensive. Yeah. Um, you know, you have hospitals under great incentives to purchase drugs at lower and lower prices. There are manufacturers under incentives to cut corners. Um, all of those things need to change at once in order to shift the entire market to a new stable state, where rather than just being a race to the bottom, it's actually going to have this sort of self-reinforcing cycle of improving resilience and quality.
2: I want to get to, to what patients and doctors are doing in a second, but I'm I'm curious how much of this your reporting shows, or or, or whether any of it is a about the fact that these are generic drugs, that there are not big profit margins to, to be made on on making them and producing them, and that they are painstaking to make
1: yeah, I, I think the fact that they are generic drugs is absolutely at the core of it. They are very low cost, they are very unprofitable, and because they are generic drugs that are injected, they are not only unprofitable but very hard to make mm. um, that combination makes it less likely that manufacturers are either going to stay in the market or to um, invest in the necessary upgrades and, um, you know, team culture and so on that would stop them from, uh, from undergoing a shortage.
2: While the shortages are more pronounced in the U.S., this is an international problem. And it doesn't just affect cancer drugs, though they clearly have the highest stakes.
1: This is also why, you know, things like albuterol in inhalers um, went into shortage recently. It's why, um, you know, it was quite hard to get childhood painkillers for a while. It was, mm-hmm. it was why um, Adderall for ADHD went into shortage. In the, the market as a whole for generic drugs, some of our most important drugs that we rely upon, is just fundamentally broken and really needs to be reimagined. One, one crucial way of thinking about this, we've heard of a lot of supply chain stories. Um, you know, remember when toilet paper ran out, when like you couldn't get yeast, when you couldn't yes. like, buy a couch, right? The pandemic gave us a ton of these, but in almost all of those cases, The problem was an external shock, right? A pandemic, something that shakes up supply and then creates a run on demand, um, and then you have a shortage. Cancer drugs are not in scarce supply for the same reason that toilet paper was running out. There, the shock is internal. It comes from within the market itself because of the market's own structure. And that's important because if you're trying to fix that, you actually will probably turn to different solutions. Like if you have an external shock that's the problem, then things like stockpiling make a lot of sense. And stockpiling kind of makes sense with a cancer drug issue, but it can't fix the problem alone. If the problem is coming from within the market itself in this spontaneous way, then you actually really do have to reimagine how that market works in order to stop this from continuously happening.
2: Where does all of this leave patients and doctors right now?
1: It leaves them in a really bad state. Um, like I said, these these cancer drugs are the foundations of a lot of therapies for a lot of different types of cancer, for a lot of very common types of cancer. Um, some of the doctors I've spoken to have said that um, they've heard from members of the public or from patients, like, why does it matter? You know, chemotherapy is toxic. Uh, surely there are newer, um, more more advanced therapies that I could try. But the thing is, drugs like cisplatin are also the backbone for newer, more advanced things like immunotherapies. Like a lot of the cancer treatment like apparatus just doesn't work without a lot of these drugs. Now, the worst case scenario, of course, is that a patient who gets cancer might just not be able to get treated, which is almost unfathomable, right? Like cancer alone is is it's a horrible diagnosis to receive. And I think, you know, one thinks that the question is always like, is there a cure? i don 't think anyone ever imagines that there might be a cure, but you can't have it because the drug you know isn 't in stock um, so currently, what i 've heard from a lot of oncologists is that. Hospitals around the country are trying to make this work and they're succeeding, but but just, right? Sometimes they are lowering the dose that patients receive. Sometimes they are spreading out the doses over longer intervals. They're really doing everything they can to just to make their meager supplies last for as long as possible. They're pulling every string possible to get more of these drugs in. But um, some of the oncologists I've said, have told me that their colleagues are starting to have to ration care, and some of them are having to ration care themselves. So an oncologist named Patrick Timmins, who's a gynecologic oncologist, told me that at his hospital, he can treat, for example, people who come in with like primary ovarian cancer, who just had a new diagnosis, but he no longer can offer these drugs because he doesn't have enough to people with recurrent cancer. Even though giving them cisplatin or carboplatin might really help to improve their quality of life, might give them a lot more months or even years of good quality life. Those are the stakes. People's lives will be shortened. Their treatments might be harder to endure. And on top of all of that, there is the psychological cost. You know, being told you have cancer is shattering. And a lot of the times cancer patients just want a plan. You know, they have to rearrange so much of their lives to get care and to deal with this horrible problem. And to, you know, add that uncertainty, that, no, that knowledge that I can treat you now, but maybe I won't be able to in two or three months unless this thing resolves. That's a horrible toll on top of the toll that they already must bear.
2: when you talk to to oncologists and i don't know if you talk to patients but i, I can imagine that in this moment you are freaking out on top of as you m- mentioned the sort of mental and emotional toll of managing cancer care are there things that i don't know helped or that that patients were trying to think about or or ways to sort of manage the incipient panic that comes with you know having your care be front page news
1: yeah, um, the oncologists I've spoken to said that by and large their patients are just like being incredibly heroic. Um, you know, obviously there is variation there, but I think that they, you know, they've they've often seen like the the best in people. You know, I worry about the the toll to patients. I also worry about the toll to the healthcare workers themselves, and I think sometimes we we forget about that piece of it. During the pandemic, I reported on how large waves of healthcare workers quit because of the conditions they experienced in COVID. And I think it's very easy to assume that they quit because of burnout, because of stress, exhaustion, and so on. But I think actually one of the main drivers is what's called moral distress. When they know about the kinds of care, the level of care that they want to provide to patients and that they got into medicine to provide and that they know that they can't actually provide that now, whether that's because their hospital was overrun by COVID patients or because, as is currently the case, they just don't have the medicines to offer, that moral distress is, is devastating to people who really got into this profession to help people. A lot of healthcare workers did leave because of that distress during the pandemic. Um, and people I spoke to for this piece told me that still it feels like the foundations of the healthcare system are shakier than they once were. And then on top of if you if you add the cancer shortages on top of that, the cancer drug shortages on top of that, it's like a one-two punch. You know, it further demoralizes people who were already really battered by three years of COVID. And I worry about that too. You know, I I've I've argued that. The, the healthcare system has to be protected, and we can't keep letting the people we expect to save us endure conditions where they actually are unable to do their job, because at some point they'll decide they don't want to do that job anymore.
2: In Ed's reporting, he spent time trying to understand ways to reimagine this system so that It wouldn't leave patients so vulnerable to a temperamental and opaque market. But doing that requires enormous will and structural change.
1: So I think that you need to shift all of the incentives in the market that currently exist in a direction that actually promotes um, stable manufacturing, that promotes resilience, that, that stops these ludicrous you know, inspections that lead to shortages, right? So um, one really important way of doing that is to have some kind of signal of quality, some kind of badge of quality. So the FDA has actually been working on a program that rates different drugs. Like, say, you have cisplatin from this company. The the rating will tell you how reliable the supply chain for that is. Mm -hmm. Currently, no such thing exists. There are also a couple of nonprofits which are doing similar things. So there's one called Risks, RISCS R-I-S-C-S, um, which uses manufacturer data to rate different kinds of generic drug products based on how robust the supply chain is. Again, that is not information that we currently have. There's one called Civica, which is negotiating between hospitals and suppliers um, to get long-term contracts for lots and lots of drugs that they buy in volume. And that gives the supplier like a bit of a guarantee, right? It says, like you, we're gonna buy a ton of product for you, you're gonna be stable for a while. It tells the hospitals, if you go through us, we guarantee you this kind of six-month supply in case a shortage happens, that's the kind of thing we need to add more stability and crucially so that if you're a, you know if you're a hospital person if you're if you've got a big budget for buying drugs, you can now see which manufacturers are going to be most reliable, which ones are not going to go down in a shortage, and also like if you want a world in which your patients aren't going to suddenly run out of drugs then this is the manufacturer to invest in. Like this is where the ethical purchasing choice is. And again, to be really clear, there is no current way of making that choice because you just don't have the information. So getting the information will be really, really important. And then a lot of the other kind of uh, like accessory policies are about making it, more compelling for hospitals to actually use that information. So you could imagine a situation where, say, Medicare has a payment scheme where it reimburses hospitals according to like the quality of the drug manufacturers that it chooses to use. And that would then compel them to um, use these ratings that we have then, you know, willed into existence. But I think that's the complexity of it, right? Like, you you need both of those pieces. You need to have transparent information about which manufacturers are good. You need to then pull hospitals and the healthcare system into actually using those ratings. You probably need to give the manufacturers a bit of a, a, a boost, um, maybe a, a loan, to help them upgrade their manufacturing, which, as we've said, is just currently, you know, a race to the low quality bottom. And I think you need to do all of that at once to really flip where we are um, with the market for some of our most important drugs.
2: One thing you're bringing up here, and forgive me if this feels like a bit of a stretch, but it is the difficulty in rewarding quality in the American healthcare system. I mean, I covered the inception of the ACA. And so much of this was about we want to pay for quality, not necessarily the volume of care. And I just wonder why that is such a hard shift to make, that everyday quality is a thing that Americans want, and yet it does not seem to be the thing that the economic structure of the U.S. healthcare care system rewards.
1: Yeah, I I mean I think it's a good question and like I'm struggling to give you a better answer than just waving my hands and go well that's capitalism for you but also that's capitalism for you um it's not just that it's that the this the the structure of the market is just so utterly dysfunctional and it's dysfunctional for a product for products that like we all need right you know if i wanted to buy a new i don't know like tv or vacuum cleaner or, or whatever i could like look at, you know, some website that gives me recommendations um, and that might tell me, like, this product costs a little bit more, but it's going to be really, really good and it's going to last you for like a decade. And then I can make a purchasing decision based on that. The fact that I cannot do that or that, you know, one hospital cannot do that for things like, you know, asthma medications or cancer drugs, um, painkillers, how could, how is it possible that we've landed in that situation? But that, that is the situation we've landed in. And I think that it's the, 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 the it's both an incredibly frustrating situation to, to be in, but it's also a fixable one. You know, unlike the supply chain problems that result from external shocks like a hurricane or a pandemic, which are very, very hard to predict, if the shocks are coming from within the market itself, you know they're going to happen and you know where the problem is and you know how to fix that. And I do think we know how to fix that. You know, reports have come out for a decade plus about how to fix this problem. And I hope that the huge stakes of the current shortages will compel more people to actually take these kinds of actions that we all ultimately will depend on.
2: Ed Young, thank you so much for your reporting and for talking with me.
1: Thanks, Lizzie. Thanks for having me.
2: Ed Young is a staff writer at The Atlantic. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of this show and like what we're doing here, the best way to support us is to subscribe to Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You'll get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.